Welcome, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's event hosted by Foundation for Defense of Democracies. I'm Jonathan Chanzer, FTD's Senior Vice President for Research. We're pleased to have you here in person and tuning in live for our event on Turkey's upcoming elections. This is a timely discussion. The opposition has just announced their candidate to challenge Recep Tayyip Erdogan in the May 14th election. We have a first-rate lineup of experts to discuss Turkish politics, the economy, the impact of the devastating earthquakes, and what the West can do to encourage a democratic restoration or resurgence in Turkey. Today's event also marks the release of my colleague Sinan Gidi's terrific new monograph, Turkey After Erdogan, which explores many of the issues that we'll be discussing today. We encourage all of you to grab a copy of the report in the lobby or give it a read online. Now for the cast of characters today, uh, Sinan Gidi is a non-resident fellow here at FTD. He is also an associate professor of national security studies at the Marine Corps University. We're also delighted to have Henri Barkey. He is an adjunct senior fellow at, uh, uh, at the Middle, uh, in, for Middle Eastern Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations and the Cohen Chair in International Relations at Lehigh University. Uh, we're pleased to welcome back to our stage our former FDD colleague, Mervi Tahirolu, uh, currently the Turkey Program Director. I understand this is a recent upgrade, the Director of uh, at the Project on Middle East Democracy. Today's panel will be moderated by Nate Schenken, who is the Senior Director of Research at Freedom House, where he leads their work on countering authoritarianism. Nate, thank you for guiding our discussion today. Before we dive in, just a couple of quick notes, uh, quick words about FTD. For more than 20 years, we have operated as a fiercely independent, nonpartisan research institute exclusively focused on national security and foreign policy. It is a point of pride for us that we do not accept foreign funding, and we never will. For more information on our work, we encourage you to visit our website, FTD.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at FTD. That's enough for me now. Nate, over to you. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Jonathan. Thanks, everyone, for coming. I think we're going to have a very lively discussion. We already started backstage. So I know that with this group, uh, no one's going to hold back from saying what they really think about what's to come. Um, let me set the stage just slightly more than what Jonathan said to elaborate. So yes, we have a date, um, very likely May 14th, uh, for these elections that we've been waiting for. We have a date. We have a candidate for the opposition. Uh, the CHP leader, Kamal Kilich Darolu, and uh, we have a coalition for now uh, that we need to, I think, discuss some of the fractures within that coalition as part of this conversation. Uh, but we also have a very, very volatile political situation. Um, we have dissent within the opposition coalition itself about the candidate. It was, was evidenced last week when the second largest party in the coalition briefly backed out and then returned uh, three days later. We have dissent over the so-called Kurdish issue, which we're going to be talking about. And we have a very, um, a country in mourning, frankly, um, still grappling with two enormous earthquakes that struck just over a month ago, um, killing more than 50,000 people, displacing millions, and with unclear consequences, I would say, politically, um, in terms of which way that cuts and to whose benefit. Um, so we have a lot to discuss. Um, we're going to jump right into it, and I want to start with Sinan, who has written the wonderful monograph report that brings us here today. Um, so my first question, Sinan, to you, which is that I would say the, the monograph is moderately pessimistic 
um, from my perspective. And I know, obviously, with something like this, you were working on it for quite a long time, so before some of the more recent shocking events. Um, it's pessimistic, in my opinion, in that it's a bit critical of the opposition coalition and the configuration of it. Um, and it's skeptical uh, regarding the resources that Erdogan, President Erdogan, may bring to bear um, to shape the election. So what would need to change for you to be less pessimistic? And as the election approaches, are you becoming more or less pessimistic? Uh, $10 million question. Uh, <laughs> whether I'm l less pessimistic, um, I'm, I think the jury's still out on this. Um, but but let, me, let me put it out in a couple of ways. Um, I think there's a difference between what I call procedural realities as well as political realities. So you're right on the money. We now have an opposition candidate, finally. After 13 deliberations of the Opposition Alliance meeting, we found out they actually discussed the candidate for the first time just a couple of weeks ago, and then they fell apart. Um, and to be reunited after somewhat agreeing over the nomination of Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu, which is okay. I still do not think he is the ideal candidate, not because I don't favor him, um, simply because I try to go by numbers. And the numbers seem to still suggest to me that uh, the money is on either Ekrem Imamoglu or Mansur Yavash taking the election by a higher margin, a safer margin, to defeat Erdogan in what I call a procedural reality, as in just a, a clean vote. Um, but at this point, um, the relative amount of optimism goes up as far as voters are concerned, especially people who just want Erdogan gone, because I think one person said it best, I can't remember the name, who said this. Right now, if you are, if you are a voter in Turkey who is adamant and just decisive that you, Erdogan has to go or be voted out, then it doesn't necessarily matter who you vote for, that you don't really care who the opposition can. And that's been emboldened, that ticket has been emboldened with the nomination of not just Kılıç Theroglu, but also uh, Mayor Imamoglu and Mayor Yavash being uh, uh, vice presidents with strength and executive powers. It still gives me concern simply because this was not supposed to be about the presidency. This was supposed to be about winning the presidency in order to transition Turkey back to a parliamentary democracy. The fact that the opposition has been hand-wringing and arguing for so long as to who the nominee is going to be suggests to me that they have a great interest in someone becoming president. Why? It just seems to me they're fixated on necessarily transitioning Turkey out of this, uh, the presidential system. Um, now then there, is the, then there are the, what I call the political realities. And to your question, I think this is where the pessimism comes in. Um, let's look, take it at face value. We are looking at, literally, not figuratively, the most corrupt, ruthless, and I would call illegitimate president that, that Turkey has ever had. We're not even having a discussion on whether he's eligible to run. He does not have a college diploma. But nevertheless, he's running. Um, we have seen that he's not willing to abide by the rules of the game. In 2019, when Imam Oğlu was decisively elected by the Istanbul vote, he annulled the vote. So these political realities, I don't want to poo-poo on the, in the political opposition or the Turkish mood that, that is seeking change in Turkey. But we have some really difficult problems. We have a a supreme electoral council, the body which governs the electoral process, stuffed to the brim with Erdogan loyalists, right? How can we be sure that they will administer the law of elections? In the past, they, were, they, they went against existing law and procedure. 
where they allowed unstamped ballots to be counted. So those were just primers in the past years. So that's just one concern. Another concern is, another political reality is, well, will it be a free and fair election? I don't know. What is the status of the HDP, the Bain Kurdish party? Will, will, will the Kurds be allowed to run? Um, we were just talking about this prior to uh, stepping up here. It seems that the government or the, or the courts may just be able to close the HDP down one day before the lists for parliamentary candidates are posted, which would disable or make impossible for the Kurds to rally and nominate alternative candidates, right? Um, will observers be allowed in Turkey to ensure that there is a free and fair ballot? And not to sort of play politics with this, but in the earthquake-stricken zones, what are we going to do with voters? What are we going about to do about the process of voting? If the YSK, the Supreme Electoral Council, was serious about holding a free and fair election, then this, this is not an insurmountable problem for them. A lot of these people who lived in these provinces have migrated to other provinces and were family members. They presumably still have ID cards. They should be able to walk up and vote anywhere, get based on the technological availabilities. Will they be permitted? So, um, and the final thing, and I'll leave it to this, is let's assume we have a clean win. What does Erdogan do? I only recently found about the process of power transition under this new presidential system. It's never been tested before. So there are a lot of question marks and unanswered. So I'm cautiously pessimistic. All right. um, I think we're going to go through several of those question marks. And I wanted, Henri, to turn to you next to speak specifically about the Kurdish issue being the issue of how will Kurdish, the Kurdish minority, very large Kurdish minority in Turkey, be politically represented? And particularly, will they be, um, on the one hand, brought into the opposition coalition through the HDP, which is the largest party representing um, the Kurdish movement in Turkey? Um, will the HDP be allowed to be brought in uh, by the Erdogan regime? And Additionally, will we see other manipulation of this issue by Erdogan and by the apparatus that he controls? Um, thank you. Thanks for inviting me. The, the, the issue on the Kurds is, is somewhat complicated by the fact that the candidacy of Mr. Kılıçdaroğlu was just decided this week, and today um, the leader, putative leader who, uh, of the party who's in jail sent a letter uh, to Ms. Akshiner, who's the number two person in the opposition coalition, uh, a nationalist who has been very anti-Kurdish, um, not as much as her brethren in the uh, ruling coalition of Mr. Bacheli, who's uh, borders on real fascism. But beyond that, uh, she had refused and objected to the HDP being included in the coalition of, of parties. So the HDP had been set aside. And I have to say, the HDP managed this period very well without making too much of a fuss. Uh, but now that there is a leader, now that there's a candidate, uh, the question is, what are you going to do with, with, with the Kurds? It seems to me that Kulishtarolu wants to talk to the Kurds. He, ha he has said it. He said, I'm going to be the, the representative of 85 million Turks, and uh, the Kurds represent approximately 6 million votes. And that's nothing to sneeze at. I mean, they're the third largest party today in, in, in the Turkish parliament. And they're likely, by the way, to remain the third largest party 
assuming they don't get banned. Um, so I think it is one hypothesis I have is that the future of who wins the elections will very much depend on what happens to the HDP. Uh, Sinan mentioned the fact that um, the, the, the state agreed that, or the, I should say the uh, Supreme Court agreed that it will take up the question of HDP's banning because the government has asked for the HDP party to be banned. And they, today they announced the date. It's going to be the 11th of April, which is one day after when every party has to, to provide a list of candidates to the Supreme Electoral Council. Once you do that, you can't change the names. So if on the 11th, or it doesn't have to be on the 11th, it can be um, at the end of April, they ban the party, then what happens to all those candidates? And I'm not sure legally, uh, I'm not that sophisticated in terms of the, uh, the intricacies of the Turkish electoral system, to what happens to all those people who are nominated under the HDP banner. They won't be able to create another party in time, right? So I think, will this mean that you will be disenfranchising um, all the HDP voters? One possibility is that the Kurds will get so upset that they will vote en masse for the Republican People's Party, which means that the Republican People's Party will emerge as by far the largest party and will ensure a victory for Kılıçdaroğlu. So Erdogan, it's not clear what Erdogan is going to do because he's damned if he does and he's damned if he doesn't. So it depends very much on his calculations. So the, in that sense, the Kurdish, the Kurdish issue is, um, is critical. The other thing, of course, is, as I said, Mr. Demirtas sent a letter to, uh, to Ms. Akshener to respond to, he has, I think, four questions or six questions, basically saying, we are Turkish citizens, we are voters, yes, we are of Kurdish origin, don't we have a right to, uh, to, to say what we want? She's not going to answer those questions, obviously. Um, but she also is playing a very intricate game in the sense that she is a product of the Turkish extreme right. She has moved slightly to the center. She's not as extreme as I said, Mr. Bakhchili, who's in alliance with Mr. Erdogan. But she can't move too far to the center because then she risks losing part of her voter base to Mr. Bakhchili and, and the and that would be a loss for the coalition. So, you know, in some ways, looking at it from her perspective, she also has a difficult decision to make. So I think what she will do is ignore Mr. Demetash's questions, which will play well with her base, but also not antagonize him. And um, so this is going to be, you know, a very intricate ballet, if you want, where everybody is going to have to be a ballerina of some sort, from Erdogan to... Um, I think that's maybe one of our quotes, that everybody will be a ballerina <laughs> from this event. Um, it's interesting, you know, you're talking about this very nuanced, subtle trap for the HDP, and it just wanted to mention as well the trap that was set around Ekrem Imamoglu in similar fashion, where this criminal judgment against the mayor of Istanbul, who was regarded as maybe the strongest challenger 
to Erdogan if he were to be nominated. After his conviction, which was then suspended on appeal, there was this Damocles sword. If he was to stand as president, he could potentially be struck from the list if the conviction was upheld. Um, and the result, perhaps, has influenced that Kilic Darolu is now the nominee, which many people think is perhaps a more favorable nominee. Can I just say one thing? Please. I, I, think, I think the opposition played that poorly because they should have nominated um, uh, the mayor of Istanbul as a candidate. And you know that immediately the government would have banned him because mm -hmm. this is a clear, in which case, then Kulishtarulu would have emerged right. as a candidate and you would have had this protest vote uh, coalescing behind Kulishtarulu. They should have played a little bit more smartly. Yes, that's the ballet. Yeah. Um, I wanted to turn to Merve. Um, and I want to note also that as we were sitting backstage, you were saying, you're not as pessimistic, so I definitely want to let you speak about that, about why you're, why you're on the less pessimistic side or even on the optimistic side. Um, but I also want to hear you talk about some of these issues around free and fair elections. I mean, I, I think one of the big concerns, especially for the international audience, is will these elections be free and fair? Um, likely not, but in very specific and subtle ways that are very specific to Turkey. So if you could speak a little bit about the quality of the elections, about the issues that you are most concerned about in terms of freedom and fairness, but also perhaps about your optimism. Um, I want to give you the chance uh, not to give in to perhaps Sinan's pessimism, maybe even my pessimism. Um, thank you, and thanks for FGD for having me again back here. Um, it's so nice to be back here. Um, I appreciate the question. I was telling Nate before back at backstage when I saw his question, I said, why the doom and gloom? All of your questions are so negative. I'm so optimistic at this point. I'm actually more optimistic than I've ever been about Turkey's future since the political events of Monday. And I'm looking at the two of you having your facial expressions here, and I'm like, what is this? <laughs> I really think in this specific moment, we have more reason to be optimistic about um, Turkey's election delivering an opposition win than we have ever been in the last 20 years. So I just want to start off by saying that. Um, now, caveat, yes, uh, it's not going to be a free and fair election. <laughs> um, but I still think the opposition will win. And so I'm going to explain that. I mean, I take all of the points that Sinan and Henri have made. Um, there's a lot of challenges the facing the opposition right now. Everybody already knows at this point with Turkey that Erdogan controls about 90% of the media. So there's basically no free freedom of expression and, and free press in Turkey. Um, but on the other hand, because of that, everybody's on social media. Um, I've been seeing uh, and hearing about, you know, discussions of, of Turkish presence on Twitter. The other day I listened to a panel discussion and somebody said that about 5% of conversations happening on Twitter are in Turkish. And this is actually way more than Arabic. It's comparable to Spanish language. Yeah, um, and there's a reason for that. So yes, much of the media is under Erdogan's control, but most people aren't really engaging with that anyway. So I think that's a very good thing. Um, uh, and that's going to be that the social media is going to play a huge role. Um, again, let me caveat that. Now, there are things, of course, the government can do. They can ban access or restrict access to social media. That is one of my big fears about what might happen, um, not necessarily in the lead up to the election, but on the day of the election, especially when the vote is being tallied. Um, I think that's 
uh, for me, when I'm looking at what are the major threats facing this election and the integrity of this election, that would be uh, one of those things. But then um, there's a lot uh, that the international community can do about that. We could put, you know, pressure on the Turkish government not to take such a step on that night and what that might mean, especially if they're, you know, election observers. Um, and that brings me to this other point, another major worry that I have and why this, uh, you know, uh, why this won't be a, a fair election is that um, the judiciary could try to go after some of the political candidates. Um, that is, a, you know, as they, as Anya explained with the HDP, the court case they're already facing, as you mentioned with Imamolu. Um, but I think, you know, um, I think the opposition has learned lessons uh, from the past, from the past few elections. And I think, you know, when I look at what the opposition is doing now, as you all know, there's a six-party coalition running right now, and the two mayors of Istanbul and Ankara have been, you know, also pulled into the discussion uh, of the election now as, you know, that they will be appointed, um, the, the uh, opposition explained that they will be appointed as vice presidents. So when I look at the opposition, I'm seeing eight people running not just one person. So it's, I'm seeing Erdogan and uh, you know, a bit of Bahçeli, David Bahçeli, the, his nationalist ally, uh, against eight people. And those eight people, you know, you could, Nate, you called them fractured. I call them diverse and appealing <laughs> to a broad you know, uh, uh, um, spectrum of Turkish voters, Turkish and Kurdish voters. Uh, I think each and every one of these people appeal to a certain kind of uh, a, a faction of the electorate. Um, if you are, you know, Henri and you're looking at it at the election and you're thinking, oh, like Kılıçdaroğlu and Sinan Kılıçdaroğlu is so boring, he's so old. Uh, well, you have Imamoğlu who's probably who's going to be campaigning now alongside him because he's been pulled in to have an active role in the campaign season. You can just tune into that. Um, if you are a Kurdish voter and you are unhappy about uh, the E-Party leader, Akşener, um, being part of the election campaign, well, you can tune into Kılıçdaroğlu or İmamoğlu, who are going to be more palatable to you. And so I think each and every one of these people appeal to a different segment of the population. And so I think, you know, this... Um, will rally voters in a way this could this has the potential to rally voters in Turkey in a way that we haven't seen in previous elections and have seen a you know a, a preview of in the 2019 election um, the you know these are all relating to I think you know, how how fair how the election will not be fair past elections have not been fair we have multiple international observers uh, groups uh, attesting to that um, but one thing my major worry has always been with this particular election is that it might be Turkey's first unfree election if there is an actual massive voter fraud or rigging of the actual ballots. Um, that is, I think, a serious concern. Um, you know, we've had unfree but uh, unfair but free elections up until this point, so this might be unfair and unfree. But then again, I'm going to bring in my optimism. You know, uh, I have this worry, but then I have to give agency to the Turkish opposition parties, to civil society in Turkey, and the international community, uh, and the OSCE. Um, there is a lot that 
that these actors can do to try to prevent that. Um, uh, I think the most important thing in this election is going to be to ensure that there is a, an, an independent uh, ballot box observer, uh, election observer, at every single polling station, every single ballot box. I think Turkey has around 200,000 ballot boxes. Um, in the 2018 election, I've read that about 11,000 of those boxes um, were just uh, uh, unmanned by anyone other than the government-appointed um, uh, poll, uh, poll officials. Um, so I think uh, the this opposition grouping has been working really hard. You know, they've been, yes, they've had 13 meetings in the last year. They maybe haven't really talked about the candidate that whole time, but they've been talking about important things like how are we going to mobilize enough volunteers to make sure there is a person at every single one of those ballot boxes. They have been, they created delegations um, among themselves to, to ensure that they will have um, people there observing what's happening, noting it down, and you know, keeping their own tallies of the vote on the night of the election. That's critical. Civil society is mobilizing independently of this. They're you know, not just trusting that the opposition will handle the situation. They are creating their own volunteer groups, um, you know, trying to reach millions of people. Um, I think it'll be critical that there will be international observers there too. And if we can ensure all of these things, then uh, I think we can, you know, this will seriously constrain uh, the government's power to actually rig the vote. I mean, they haven't, you know, even in the past instances, past elections, we've seen them, you know, tempering with the vote here and there, you know, um, counting uh, empty ballots, etc. But this as I understand it, has only really impacted about like 1% of the, of the vote. So if the opposition can, you know, win with a much larger margin, and by much larger, I mean like 3%, not, you know, 10%. I think that's, you know, we don't even need that. Um, then I think they won't actually be able to manipulate the results and rig the election. So there's a lot that the opposition has been doing. Uh, I think it's smart. Um, it's been really smart. I think on Monday, the unity that they showed with all of these eight people uh, you know, speaking, it really um, rallied voters. I think it created a huge sense of um, uh, optimism and hope in Turkey. And also, I want to you know, make just one quick mention of this unique moment we're standing in. I mean, Turkish people have been really uh, disillusioned with uh, President Erdogan and his, and his regime because of the economic crisis, devastating economic crisis that they have been facing for the past year at, at minimum. And on top of that, they are now not just disillusioned, but outraged, outraged at the government's um, irresponsible and incredibly slow and inadequate response to the earthquake uh, disaster. And so I think with all of these factors combined, I think we're going to see a very lively, vigorous election uh, um, season, a campaign season and an election night. And there's a lot that we can do to ensure that the, um, yes, it will not be a fair election, but we can, there's a lot we can do to try to make sure that it's um, as free as possible. Great. I want to give Henri and, and Sinan as well a chance to speak about that if you'd like to. If there are things that the U.S. and other allies, international community actors, can do to try to ensure that, as Merve says, the, the opportunities are constrained at least for manipulating the vote. What are, are there things that can be done in this period? And then we'll talk a little bit about after the election, perhaps. Um, just a couple of points of reflection on Merve before I touch upon that. The 
the first thing I would say on, on, on the cup half full side, if, if you're a person who is looking for change in Turkey, one thing that we should not un underestimate is, look, the government, as far as we can tell, is, is, is in full crisis mode. It's, it's an emergency resp response. And I don't mean that in a sort of relief or you know, emergency response management side. I'm saying panic. And how do we know this? I mean, first 48 hours of the earthquakes, Erdogan was not only missing, but when he goes on the airwaves, that photograph you see on front of the, the monograph is that's President Erdogan facing the nation. And he literally threatens people, right? Um, he's taken to sort of sterilized environments like model tents where, you know, earthquake survivors have, been, you know, have resources, but that's not a reflection of reality. You know, most people are missing like drinking water in, in, in a province of Hatay. There's dysentery, disease going around. People are angry. And the government response is responding with threats and anger. We will go after you. We will tell you, we, we will, everyone will get their due once these elections are over. That's what President Erdogan said, I think, yesterday. I don't think they have a pulse on what to say. I don't think they quite know what they're doing. The, the, the, this deinstitutionalization of the country is in a pretty bad state, and, and, and they know this. And they also know that they don't really have the response to, to, to, to move public opinion back on their side. So that's, on the, I would say, on the positive side if you're seeking change. To counterbalance against that, I think the opposition has to bring its A game, and, and, I, and I'm not necessarily seeing that. And I, the whole point about 13 meetings of the opposition alliance and not once talking about the candidate and then talking about it at the last minute and the whole show falling apart is, is pretty serious, uh, I would say. It's, it's, it's just not good enough. Um, there seems to be a complete lack of structure in terms of how these leaders agree on whatnot. And behind the scenes, I think the more troubling aspect is, I don't think they're really too concerned or they have not been too concerned about you know, how to reinstitutionalize the rule of law in Turkey and how to rebuild the country. It's more being a more about well, how many seats is the CHP gonna get? Are we going to get any, you know, is, is, is, the, is the Devar Party going to get any cabinet ministers? More concerningly with Akshener, you know, the second biggest party in the opposition, we've just been hearing over the last few weeks is what her main problem seems to be is these crony capped companies that have so far been loyal to Erdogan, the so-called Gang of Five, which are these gigantic construction companies, telling Akshener, look, we just basically want things to continue in the economic realm, like the spoils be given to us. We're not really too happy with Erdogan, but what are you, what are you hoping to give us if we back you, right? And it seems to be about the continuity of the economic spoil system as far as the actionaire sort of supporting group of capitalist corporate entities are concerned. This is where the whole sort of democratic vibrancy and, and dynamism sort of dies a death in my world, simply because just lurking behind the scenes is just like, well, the main benefactor, benef benefitors from this sort of system that's been in existence for the last 15, 20 years of spoils. They just want the show go on. Whoever can provide that for them, and it doesn't seem to be Erdogan at this point, they just would like that to continue. That's not something that we talked about in the report because that's a little bit more shady and, and, and unsubstantiable, uh, at least on the, at the unfro. But how does the opposition bring its A game in terms of really mobilizing the sentiment of existing voters' dissatisfaction with the government. That's what they should be focused on. And I'm glad at this point that Imam and Yawash will get a, hopefully a front row sort of seat in, in, in galvanizing voters of different persuasions because 
you know, Mr. Kulishtarolu, as, as good a person he is, I don't think he's necessarily just boring or old. My main concern with him is, is he just feels that the, that the, the office of president is owed to him. And that's not good enough. Why does, who owes you what? If we're going by numbers and strategy, there is a clear strategy. You have a, war, you have a dynamic presidential candidate who defied Erdogan in the Black Sea region in the summer. Nominate him. And they say, well, there's procedural hurdles against him. They'll, they'll, they'll ban him. So what? That's how Erdogan ran in 2002. What are you scared of? Run the candidate. Get him to run. He can still run. If they ban him, if they do not give him the, the certificate to assume office, then make sure you have a, con, you know, a concerted you know, civil response to that. What's your, what's your strategy for a president who may be voted in with 60% of the popular vote? Are you just going to sort of let that fall apart? Or are you just going to say, well, they might ban him, so let's go with the second best? These are not the times, I would argue, for half measures. These are the times when they need to be bringing their A game, and I just don't see it coming. Um, on top of all the unknowns in, in, in political malfeasance that we will see. Because here's what we'll say, and, and this is what I really push back with, um, with critics of our pessimistic view, especially the Turkey-based uh, Turkey analysts. They quite often point out saying, well, in 2019, Imamoglu won, and Erdogan had to give him the mayoralty of Istanbul even though he annulled his result the first time and he ran, he ran again, therefore democracy works in, in Turkey. The only problem with that view is that's not an ex, that was not an existential battle for, for, for Erdogan at the time. He would have preferred the AKP hold on to Istanbul, but giving up, losing the presidency is existential for him. He does not have the luxury to just say, well, I lost, that's a like Mr. Bolsonaro, I can't see him migrating to Florida and eating fried chicken uh, you know, on, the, on the eve of power transition and just saying, well, I lost that. Let's just see what happens in five years' time. This is an existential battle. And, and, and, and to the critics of, of that, I just don't know, given what we know of him, how he would just walk away from this in a decisive defeat. Sorry, I didn't even answer the, the actual question. Henri. Go ahead, Henri. Um, look. What can the outside world do? I think almost nothing. Uh, only because if Erdogan, I mean, you heard Sinan say this is existential. So if an issue is existential for you, do you think that the United States or Europe saying, well, if you cheat, we will do X, Y, and Z, will we'll, uh, deter him? No, it, it shouldn't. I mean, it doesn't make sense. The one thing, and I don't know if this is the reason the United States did this, but we did see something happen this week, uh, which was, I think, a drawing of a red line. Because one of the concerns has been that he may manufacture a crisis in Syria, in northern Syria, and move troops, because that will galvanize a nationalist vote, and he'll be able to you know, rally people around the flag. This is one traditional way most politicians have done in the, uh, worked in the past. And if you notice that this week, and this may have been done, prepared a long time ago, I don't know, but uh, uh, General Milley was in northern Syria this, this week. And I think that's the clearest way we could send a message to, to Erdogan saying, don't mess with northern Syria. Mm. Whatever you do, that's not mm. going to be accepted. You know, the, northern Syria and the, and the PYD is f way too important for 
somebody of uh, Millie's stature to make a, a trip there. So that, I think, is uh, one signal. And I don't know if they had, maybe they had, Millie wanted to go. It may, I, it may not be political. I don't, I, nobody's told me one way or the other. But to me, that was a cl very clear signal. So yes, we can send, we meaning the Europe and United States can send messages. Um, and even, but whether or not Erdogan listens is another matter. I mean, we've seen in the past that he doesn't necessarily take us very seriously. So I, yes, we should maybe say it, but don't, don't expect much. I'm going to let you respond, because I know you want to. And then I'm mindful of time, and I want to give us some time to talk about post-election. Okay, thank you. I, I, I just think that like there is, I mean, yes, of course, ultimately, this is going to be up to the Turkish opposition and civil society. But I do think there's a lot that um, the international community can do. Not a lot that they can do, but I think they have a pretty vital role to play. Um, and one of that is, you know, all these scenarios that, you know, we talked about. Um, I'm worried about, you know, yes, I, I do think that if Erdogan loses the election with a small margin, especially, that he may not want to give up power. I think in a moment like that, it is very likely that the opposition uh, supporters are going to take to the streets. Um, I don't think in that moment the Turkish police or the army is going to fire at these protesters. It's not Iran. Turkey's not Iran yet. Um, they might do tear gas, um, right? They might try to use uh, water cannons to disperse. I mean, there could be violence, and that is a real uh, scenario. So I think the international community, especially civil society, can try to help Turkish people in that moment. That is one concrete thing that they can do. Second, I think any of the reactions um, that could, you know, the possible spectrum of reactions that could come from Erdogan in the event that he loses the election um, will be restricted if there are international observers, especially foreign government officials on the ground. So I think between now and the election, every single interaction U.S. officials, uh, whether congressional uh, members or, or with administration officials, have with their Turkish counterparts, they have to really stress hard that the whole world is watching these elections very, very closely. And, uh, you know, there has to be at least a semblance of democratic uh, <laughs> process involved. And, and if there is a blatant, for example, uh, if these elections end up being blatantly unfree, um, if, you know, Erdogan does try to pull like a January 6th situation, um, I think the message needs to be clear right now, not at that time, but from right now until May 15, um, that the world is watching and, there, and you won't get the F-16s and you won't get the, uh, you will maybe have sanctions uh, coming from the EU and, and uh, the United States. You aren't going to uh, be tolerated in international multilateral institutions that you are a part of where you have been trying to obstruct the processes anyway, um, like the Council of Europe. And so I think these messages can be very clearly conveyed right now. Um, and, you know, one big message that, you know, I think all U.S. officials should be giving at any given um, uh, engage, any engagement that they have with their Turkish counterparts is it is very important for the credibility of these elections that the Turkish government does invite um, foreign observers, that they are allowed, that you do have um, uh, OSCE presence um, 
on you know as the OIC has already recommended to, you know uh, to the to, to its members that they want to put together um, a mission they do think it's necessary they did a report back in December and I think you know for that to actually happen Turkey the Turkish government would have to invite them in if they don't it would be I, I think you know a, a, a huge step back for Turkey because in previous elections they have been invited so it's very important that every time a US official meets their counterparts which is happening between now and May 14, they say clearly you have to invite these observers. That is one thing, the minimal thing that you should do. And if th that is the case, if you do have a large presence, and if you have, uh, you know, both on the ground, but also if you have people watching the election, and there's a clear message that, you know, the U.S. Congress is watching the election very closely, the Biden administration is watching, the EU is watching, Germany is watching, I think there are, there are a limited amount of things that, that Erdogan would be, be able to do in order to, you know, completely steal this election. And so I think um, that's uh, uh, one very concrete thing that I would recommend uh, as a policy uh, for uh, Turkey's democratic allies. As a representative of an international human rights organization, I feel obliged to co-sign um, those arguments in that I think there are things that can be done. I, I, I don't, I won't disagree entirely, Henri, with the notion that there may be places that those actions can't go or won't, things they won't change, but I think they're worth the effort and I think they will, they have a shot and I think it's worth bringing them to the table. Um, we only have about 10 or so minutes before we get into uh, questions from the audience. And I wanted to use that time to talk with the group a little bit about um, after the election. Um, I'm gonna skip over the question of what will happen if Erdogan loses. I think we've talked quite a bit about that uh, in various ways. Um, but I wanna hear your thoughts about what, the, uh, what are the main tasks of the opposition if they win. Um, I think there's probably a lot of interest in this audience around um, issues around the rule of law, issues around um, re-institutionalization, perhaps, to combat the de-institutionalization of recent years, and also around foreign policy, um, of course, is a big concern for folks in Washington. Um, anyone, I'll open it up perhaps to Sinan first. It's your monograph. You're the reason we're here. Um, but I'd like to hear from, uh, from everyone, because I think this is, of course, in, in some sense, this is the optimistic part. Um, even if you're maybe not completely optimistic about what the task will look like or how difficult it will be, this is the optimistic part. This is a chance for a country that has gone through a lot and has been through a very, very difficult period. This will be the chance to get some things right and to have a, a transformative period, potentially. Um, so what does that look like? What are the tasks on the table for the opposition if they win? So. I think this is the part of the project that when I was doing this took the longest time because it, it involved just sitting there um, and looking and thinking about what what does what does the new government, assuming that it takes power, or the new president's office, what is it, it it's so vast the problems that you're looking at. I just didn't know how to begin to conceptualize it. Um, it proved to me very, very difficult. I, I remember a, f a few years ago, um, when I read one of one of Icahn's, um, my, my predecessor, uh, Icahn Erdem's work, he talked about the need to, to reestablish a new social contract between between the between the state and and, and, and, the, and the people of Turkey. I, I can't think of a time when that's more prescient than now. I mean, it's, we're not just talking about you know change of government. You know, the optimists in Turkey say, oh, in two years' time the economy will be straight and things. I mean, there's at some level a need for like societal-wide therapy in Turkey in terms of just how much people have gone through socially, politically, and economically in the last 
10 years that they've become so numb and desensitized to to bad governance um and it's just it it, it it's really quite a herculean task is i think that's the adjective that i used um but let's say that's that's what we're faced with well the problem for any incoming government is it's not a rosy picture just the economic portfolio alone is is going to be humbling i mean turkey will literally need to turn to um international institutions to essentially uh, to seek aid, um, not just because of the earthquake. This was true even before the earthquake. And the Erdogan government's been hopscotching around sort of ne the need for international finance due to lack of investment um, through currency swaps and other sort of financial tools which are not essentially geared towards a prudent economic management, but just keeping liquidity alive in the economy. They will need to essentially now try to sort of have an economic plan such that 81 million people plus a significant refugee population, plus earthquake devastation, can have a realistic path towards redevelopment economically. And that will need a figurehead. Uh, we've had other figureheads in the past, not least of all Kemal Dervish back in the early 2000s, uh, who reached a successful IMF uh, standby agreement. This time it will be harder simply because they'll have to open up the books. Turkey's economic books have not been open since the 2010s, and that's going to, you know, display a whole truckload of government mis mishandling and uh, misuse of public funds, corruption. I mean, if you can believe it, the, the Turkish Central Bank, and I'll put it in air quotes, donated 30 billion lira towards the earthquake. In any normal situation, that would trigger an automatic state investigation. You can't donate the people's money to any cause, like a private individual or a private or corporation. So this is what we're talking about, just on the economic realm. On the political and institutional level, again, I think we'll, the Turks will need to really seriously think about reinstitutionalizing a meritocratic system of civil service governance, um, accountability, transparency. I think a lot of this needs to be rethought, but also just governance culture, which has been eradicated. I mean, you know, people look at the sort of the supposed pre-Erdogan and elitist, vanguardist, Kemalist state. Sure, but at some level, it was accountable and, and meritocratic to a degree, uh, and, and much more predictable in terms of decision-making. Uh, uh, uh, that, that, that, I think, is very, very problematic. Um, how do you do that? Presumably, they will have to essentially screen present employees. They will have to essentially determine you know, who should be in what position based on how they were appointed. I think this is going to take time. Um, but that's just on a personnel and staffing level. Um, the other aspect, obviously, is the big promise that the opposition is promising, which is how to transition Turkey back to a strengthened parliamentary system. What does that mean? And that cannot happen without two-thirds majority in parliament, which, which is necessary for constitutional change that will revert or that will put language in that constitution to transition Turkey back to a parliamentary system. And that does not happen if the Kurds aren't on board with it. Right? And this is the problem. Now, let's assume that the HTP is not shut down by this present uh, government or it reinvents itself under new guise. If they are shut out by the nationalists, the Akshanar people, Right, or they're not permitted a voice. They're not really asking for that much. They're not looking for cabinet positions. They're not looking for this or that. They do want to have a voice being the third largest party in parliament right now. 
But if they're shut out and they do not support the opposition, or they don't have a voice, how is the, the new parliament going to achieve constitutional change without the support of the Kurds? It's impossible. And therefore, you may have a successful president who's defeated Erdogan, but they'll fall very short. They could fall very short in transitioning Turkey back to a parliamentary democracy simply because they might lack numbers. So that's a significant challenge too, but I'll shut up there for now. Very, one, one point, which is they could do, they could try to take it to a referendum with three-fifths majority, which is yes. easier to do. But yes, I think with the, you know, taking HDP out of the equation yes, makes everything harder. But it is, you know, they could do it maybe with uh, three-fifths. And I think they could have three-fifths of the parliament <laughs> after this election. Um. Look, the biggest problem in this election is that it's really about Erdogan. That is to say, almost like our 2020 elections. I mean, people are voting not because they like the opposition or they're really enthusiastic about the opposition. They just want to get rid of Erdogan. So that creates a problem for, for, for the opposition when it win, if it were to win because it doesn't really have a very concrete mandate. In part, you also see it in the fact that I have no idea what the, the platform is all about. I mean, is there really a platform out there? I mean, are there any economic ideas out there? At least not, I mean, I, I, I try to read every day, but I haven't seen anything. But we do know one thing, however. Um, the first task of the new government will be to deal with the um, earthquake because the earthquake has been mishandled uh, uh, and something has to be done and the task is enormous. The advantage is that uh, there's likely to be a great deal of more support from the outside for a, a non-Erdogan government because people are reluctant to help Erdogan beyond kind of the humanitarian uh, aspects of the earthquake. So the, because you will, one needs really a major um, plan as to what, what to do next. So the earthquake is going to be the, the short-term um, focus point, which in some ways may work for the opposition because it gives them something they can work on and they can show results if they can. I mean, that's one. Secondly, as Sinan said, it's the economy stupid. I mean, this is, uh, but that's very, very difficult. I mean, the Erdogan economic policy was one of growing the economy at the expense of the rate of inflation, using the construction sector such as it is now we know, um, as, the, as a main engine, engine of growth. And that has burdened the, the state with huge debt, which has to be paid, um, but it's also has not been that productive. Turkey has an enormous um, opportunity here because there's major shift going on in the world in terms of um, with the United States move, trying to move manufacturing away from um, from China. I'm not saying that Turkey will replace uh, you know, the Apple uh, factories in, in, in China. However, Turkey does have a very educated and very efficient workforce that has proven in the past capable of producing stuff that's exportable. So if you have an imaginative leader and you can start thinking in the long term as to how you're going to try to use your, your location, I mean, Turkey's location being so close to Europe um, right, is, is an enormous advantage. Um, but 
there are two also big unknowns in terms of uh, the future, and that is foreign policy. Uh, you can't expect a new government to change everything immediately or even in the medium term. So what will happen with Ukraine? I mean, Turkish policy towards Ukraine. What will happen with respect to Cyprus and, and uh, this whole Aegean business, I, and also northern Syria? I mean, on all these things, I expect that the, the new government will try to not create problems for itself, because it does, you know, they will need help and support from the outside. I mean, if you, think, if you think at what Erdogan did when he first came to power, which was amazingly smart, I mean, he adopted a policy of democratization and opening and, and doing everything that previous Turkish governments had never thought of doing or never uh, tried to do, and garnered enormous amount of support outside. If that's what the, the new government, and I'll stop here, what the new government wants to do, that means you don't invade northern Syria, um, you, you, you, you don't you don't take a very shall we say nationalistic line on the Aegean and so on and so forth, and but that's that's not easy when you're trying to also change the economy etc. Thank you. Um, I think with this time, I think we should just go ahead and go into our Q and A. Um, I'm sure there are many questions in the audience. I'm going to let the FTD staff uh, manage the microphones and all of this. Um, just when you ask a question, please state your name, affiliation. Please ask questions. Um, ask questions. Uh, I think we know what that means. And um, if you want to direct it to someone specific, please do. Otherwise, anyone will take it. Icon, I believe you have the first. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Sinan, for this wonderful report. And thank you to our panelists who refuse to be intimidated. <laughs> uh, so two questions. One is in the run-up to the elections and in the immediate aftermath of the elections, this is to the panel. Uh, do you expect, first of all, a campaign of scapegoating of Turkey's vulnerable minorities, including ethnic, religious, gender, and sexual minorities? And in the aftermath of the elections, if you expect some social unrest during the transition or the failed transition, do you again see a similar targeting of vulnerable minorities? And a second quick question. If the opposition wins, what do you think will be the impact on Iran, which will lose access to a country which was the main facilitator of its sanctions evasion schemes, as well as some of its supply chains throughout the Syrian civil war? Thank you. It's a very, I can take a stab at the, maybe the first one and a half questions. Um, so it just made me think, and based also what Henri was saying with, with the foreign policy portfolio, whatever Erdogan does leading up to the election, one of the things I'm fairly sure he won't be able to do, or I, I'm just guessing he won't be able to do, is rely on sort of anti-Western, anti-American, anti-Jewish, anti-Israeli sentiments to fire up base voters, right? That's become very difficult for him because from anywhere from Israeli to uh, Iraqi to, to you name the country has sent relief workers. So that the whole anti-Western rhetoric, fiery rhetoric that he's used in the past couple of years at least, or even longer, but let's just say at a, at a heightened level, I don't think he can utilize that right now because I don't think it's of use to him, mainly because people are very happy with or very inspired by foreign relief workers coming to help them. I don't think that's the road you go down, but also just the amount of aid that's come to Turkey from partners and allies. 
So what does that leave in terms of who you can demonize, de uh, dehumanize, delegitimize, and really, and, and the, the easier answer that comes to me, and this is something that Interior Minister Soylu is, is extremely good at, is basically otherizing Turkey's minorities, whether they are racial uh, uh, or, or gender-based or identity-based um, and minorities. I mean, they've already basically gone down the path of saying, you know, we're going to disestablish LGBTQ in Turkey because this is an abomination, quote, right? Um, that they will do their best, that this is not part of our culture. That is something that they could obviously use, but how effective that could that be? Given the on-the-ground reality, I think that would be off-message. Some people might be receptive to it in Turkey, I'm sure. But n my suspicion would be not in a way that that was in, in a previous sort of pre-earthquake pre Turkey. That would be my initial um, suspicion. On the Iran question, that's a really good one. Um, we do know that you know, despite the Zarab and Hulk Bank scandals, I can't necessarily directly say the government has been continuing this, but we at FDD have kept on with uh, violations of Iran sanctions going on by close associates of Tayyip Erdogan. Uh, there is a person who has been designated and sanctioned, uh, uh, one degree of separation between him and Erdogan, as in their very close colleagues, the name of Sitka Ayan, uh, has been designated and sanctioned by the United States Treasury for continuing to you know, sell Iranian uh, uh, fossil fuels to uh, uh, uh, to China, and the proceeds of that money has been going to things like the Al Quds Force, uh, uh, the Quds Force in, for the IRGC, as well as uh, I think Hezbollah, if I'm not mistaken, uh, in, in in in Lebanon. So they've continued this, as far as I can see. Now, what happens if there is a change of government? That is a good question. I am not prepared to answer that yet, simply because I'd have to see who's in power. Uh, but my hunch is, if it is a decisive, let's say, cholesterol of victory, that that might have to come to a, com you know, a, a complete and immediate stop. That's my hunch, but I'm not sure if it's the right one. Please. <laughs> yeah, just very, very quickly. Um, uh, yes, of course, uh, minorities, gender, ethnic, religious are going to be extremely vulnerable, I think, in this whole uh, election period process uh, I think they will be they will come under attack and especially if there is unrest after the election um, that's uh, just a very sad reality um, for Turkey but I just have to add as you know someone that follows Turkish civil society very closely Turkey's minorities are the most resilient people like on earth I mean and especially when it comes to um, uh, trying to protest against the government. I mean, the Pride Parade has been banned in Turkey for the last, like, what, uh, 10, years? 10 years? Exactly 10 years. Every year, they march. Women are banned from having uh, women's, pro uh, women's Day rallies. Yesterday, they still march. So, <laughs> you know, these people just don't care that, you know, that the police is telling them no. Um, you know, the, the Kurds, they vote. They, you know, the, the government takes over their municipalities. They vote again for the same guy. Like, it's just, they, you can't really uh, intimidate Turkey's minorities. I think they're extremely, extremely um, resilient. So there's the positive um, uh, note on that. And, you know, on a similar vein, I think, I don't know about government policy, Turkey's government policy towards Iran, but I do hope that a, a pro-democratic regime change in Turkey can uh, provide much needed inspiration and morale for our Iranian neighbors um, as well. So that's the my other positive take on this election. Sorry, can I just weigh in on that slightly more? Just, just very brief point towards I. One of these, 
so we know about the case, the Ayan case. We also know about uh, the um, the guy who's been held in Utah. Uh, I forget his name for now. Sezgin Baran Korkmaz, who's now awaiting federal trial um, for various um, defrauding the United States Treasury. My the other guess I'm having is with the collateral of presidency. My hunch is there's going to be a lot of people associated with sanctions busting, um, or or and or illicit trade and or defrauding various international actors, not least of all the United States Treasury, who will have to summarily de depart Turkey, or at least find ways out because they will have a lot of troubles because they will not, I am assuming, have state protection, and that would play to Kılıçdaroğlu's advantage to provide its United States allies, mm -hmm. as well as the Europeans low-hanging fruit in terms of incentives and say, here are some criminals that are associated with the Erdogan government. Here is what they've been up to. That's low-hanging fruit. I do not see necessarily any sort of loyalty or benefit for Kılıçdaroğlu for maintaining the cover of some of these people or, or, or least of all, afford them the opportunity to continue self-enriching themselves and Erdogan's cronies. Gentlemen here. First over there, or? No, go ahead. Oh, great. Hi, um, I'm Ian McGilvery from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. Um, thank you to the panel and Sinan for this great monograph. Look, I just want to kind of ask a two-part question on about the kind of Herculean task of state reinstitutionalization. Um, Sinan, you kind of talked about personnel, but it's also a problem of capacity and expertise. What's the panel's ideas around how the opposition, if they do win, are going to be able to do this? You know. There is a history of purging within the state. You know, will it be a process of retribution, or will it be something like truth reconciliation councils or amnesties? You know, this is something that is the process of state reformation is a very difficult and complex one. So that's the first part. Second one, kind of similar. You know, we've seen, given the kind of struggles between the RKP and the military, this kind of revival of a paramilitary structure within Turkey. You know the rise of non-state actors being used as forward projection in Libya and Azerbaijan, you know, Sadat Incorporated, these kind of organizations. What's your thoughts about how these will play in Turkish foreign policy afterwards? They've been relatively effective, but will this be a continuation or will we see kind of a reversion back to traditional military engagement or, you know, um, just diplomatic and keeping a very minimal role with the uh, Turkish military? Oh, you want to start with that? Do you want to stab at that? Um, I was hoping you, I was going to think as you were talking, but um, <coughs> good strategy. So, um, look, rebuilding the state is a very difficult one. I mean, you're really putting your, in many ways, that's the most probably the most difficult issue because it, a they've been out of power for 20 years, so they don't have the expertise that uh, is required. Um, where will they get that expertise? I am not necessarily sure. I mean, they, there is, it's not that there isn't expertise in Turkey. There is plenty of expertise. I mean, the universities are very strong. Uh, I'm not talking about the AKP universities that were created, but the traditional universities. So you have expertise there that you'll have to mobilize. Um, but, but you're right, it's going to take time, and it's, gonna be, it's not going to be easy. Um, on the issue of... Um, sanctions in Iran, et cetera, and, and how do you do this? Look, the, 
an opposition government that comes to power, given the monumental tasks it has in front of it, will probably pursue a policy, just as I alluded earlier in my previous answer to a question, a policy that will seek to mobilize support from where the money is, basically the West. Right? So I suspect that, um, as I said earlier, they're not going to go after northern Syria. Similarly, they will accommodate the West when it comes to Iran. They won't do things that will uh, create problems here. I mean, look, Congress today is virulently anti-Turkish. It has never been like this before. And so you have, a, even if the administration were to be more sympathetic, you also have to worry about Congress. So there are many issues that Turkey will have to deal with that will, think of Iran, for instance. Were it to take steps against Iran, it will get a lot of, engender a lot of goodwill on the hill. Forget about the administration for a moment, but on the hill, which this issue is very important. And, and therefore, I suspect the smart strategy would be to do that. And it is not a costly strategy in terms of public support. I mean, Turks don't, give, don't care about it, whether or not you help sanction busting. Sanction busting had essentially two purposes, three purposes for Erdogan. One was to show that he's tough, that he can stand up to the West, and he made a lot of it. Two, it was a way of putting money, bringing money into state coffers when he really desperately needed uh, money. And thirdly, many of his cronies were involved in this and were making money out of it, right? So um, of these three, number one and number three are not relevant for, let's say, an opposition government. Bringing money in, it's not a huge amount of money engendering goodwill uh, uh, in the West uh, is actually far more important. So that, I suspect that's where you will see major changes. I, I, I could just add that uh, in addition to what Henri is saying, I think the, the, the phrase that I keep coming back to is low-hanging fruit. I mean, for a new administration in Turkey, they would is essentially want to re-engage with the West to the extent that that is where the money is. And that is where they're seeking goodwill from, just for, for, for the purposes of reconstruction and and um, and rebuilding of, of a Turkish economy or or, or the republic as it, as it lays bare. Um, part of that's going to require give and take for, with the Europeans, right? I mean, there are certain things I don't think they're immediately going to budge on or, or, or, or give in on, because it's a point of leverage in terms of discussions. Um, so anything pertaining to you know, ongoing historic problems such as Turkey and the Aegean, the status of EEZs and, you know, continental shelf and territorial waters between Greece, Turkey, the future of Cyprus. There's a point of negotiation which Turkey could probably approach if it chose to do so in a non-confrontational manner or non-militaristic manner, let's just say, right? Because it is interested in achieving things like a, a, a renegotiation with the customs union they would like to be able to incorporate some aspect of agriculture in that. They're interested in visa-free travel for Turkish citizens into, the, in, into Europe, right? So those are points of, of negotiation. I agree. I don't think they give a, um, you know, stuff about sort of, you know, moving quite decisively on Iran because I don't think that's a huge issue for them to, to become stuck on. Libya, Syria, I, I also think it's the same. Um, there, are, there are some, you know, low-hanging fruit. Um, another one we haven't mentioned, uh, NATO expansion. 
I mean, that is something the president, new president of Turkey can just wave and, and, and basically make happen if he chooses to do so, right? He'll go for parliamentary ratification, but he could decree it if he wanted to. Um, <laughs> so, good question. So how about Hamas? So I would again think my hunch is for Kalishtarola for administration, that's, not, that's a no-brainer. I mean, Turkey historically has, uh, you know, historically, and I mean reference point of the 1990s, had a very strong relationship uh, with, the, with the Israeli uh, state, right? Both in defense procurement, intelligence sharing, joint exercises, in addition to the business run that's continued. I think that should be small sort of pickings or slim, you know, easy pickings for a new coalition administration to make a decisive move to actually, ex you know, ex just expel some of the senior members of Hamas that they, and also kick the organization out of the country and not give it status inside of Turkey. Because again, it would cost Turkey nothing diplomatically with Hamas. But in terms of if they're interested in rebuilding substantive ties with Israel, which presumably they would be interested in for a whole load of reasons, especially defense procurement, then that would be a, a surefire way of doing it. I mean, there are problem areas. I think like, so if you ask, for example, the S-400s, as much as I am a, you know, believer in the bona fides of Kalishtarola being re-engaging with the West, I can also see that as a point of leverage with the West, right? As in, I want to divest this, but how are you going to make it worth my while? I could see that being an area of negotiation, not of immediacy, but things like moving over Hamas is a good question, but also just terminating aggressive positions over Syria, um, you know, relationships with, with Libyan entities. I can see they move much, much quicker on that, yeah. as well as NATO expansion. So we only have about five more minutes, um, and I know there's a gentleman who's been waiting here for a question. Um, if I could just say one thing on this foreign policy issue, um, you know, there's been this big shift in a transactional relationship. I mean, that's the language that right. we started talking about it in in, in Washington um, about seven, eight years ago. There was a big discussion: is it becoming transactional? It's become obviously transactional. There's really nothing left. <clears throat> I think the pro the the promise, the hope for a new administration and a new government would be to return to a basis of a relationship that's not transactional, that's based on, that is an ongoing relationship that's based on values, right? And in that, you would hope that it wouldn't be a negotiation on individual items. You know, t you give me this, I'll give you that. You, I'll, I'll take away this, you take away that. But would be based on, this is our long-term relationship and these are our mutual interests. I think that's the area where, you know, there's a lot of questions among Turkey watchers about whether the, the structure is there, kind of to hold Turkey and the U.S. together the way they used to be held together. But that's the hope, is that a true ally doesn't have a transactional relationship. A true ally is in a long-term engagement in which we work together, and sometimes we disagree, but we, we find our ways to, to share purposes. Uh, Jerry Hyman at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. A comment and then two questions, if I could. The comment is that as to observers and so on and so forth, if you're in an existential crisis and you're an autocratic government, you're not going to worry too much about the uh, election observers and their views. You want to get that election under your belt. Similarly, it seems to me, uh, as to the opposition, I wish that they wish they had the problem of trying to figure out what to do after the election, but they can't do that until they win the election. So that's the comment. The question is, assume for a moment that the election comes out in favor of the opposition. 
it seems to me the question is what does what do the security forces do? Do what does the army do? What do the security forces do? And if they side with the election result, that's a whole different story than if they than if they don't. So my question is, where do you think that is? And the second is, as to the HDP and the and the coalition, couldn't the coalition indicate that it, even if the HDP isn't part of the coalition, they are sympathetic to what the HDP and its constituents want afterwards? And wouldn't that be enough to induce the Kurdish vote to support the opposition, even if there isn't a direct HDP um, participation in, in the coalition? So those two questions. Um, look, the, the, the Volga is sending, I mean, Kulishtagol is sending messages to the to, to HDP, and everything the HDP has been saying so far is, look, give us a reason to support you, right? And the letter today that I mentioned earlier to Ms. Akshenak is part of that strategy. You know, we they, they're not confronting the um, the opposition coalition, but they're looking for a way to to engage with them. So I think I think that's going to work. And it may even be that uh, the the HDP will not uh, put forward the candidate for the presidency. In which case, this, the, the, there may be a first round victory for the opposition. I mean, so that's what is being negotiated behind behind closed doors. I, th I think. Um, Look, the military is a very interesting question. I mean, the military has been politicized, as, is under, just like every other institution in the country, is under Erdogan's thumb. However, the biggest question we have actually have not addressed, and um, it just occurred to me, um, is let's assume the opposition won, and Erdogan accepted, he doesn't have a choice. What does he do next? He's not going to run five, four or five years later again. He's not going to do what we see here. He's not. This is different. Right? He is the state. He is in every office of every little um, state institution. So you take him out of there. What happens to the opposition party? First of all, there's going to be a bloodbath as to who's going to replace him. Mm. Will he stay on the on the on the sidelines like and try to influence? If there are all these legal cases against him too, I suspect he's going to look for a way to make a deal and to shut up. Which means that the AKP, which is not a party, it's just a number of people mm. with Erdogan on top. Mm. So we may actually. You were talking about two thirds earlier. I mean, you're going to have a, a, a parliament in which you have an op a ruling, let's say, the opposition that, let's say, that wins, right? And then for opposition, you'll have nothing, mm. right? And that's actually, in some ways, is good if you're the <laughs> in power, but also it's bad for, for, for the country. You do want a serious opposition. I just don't know how Erdogan, what he does, like if... if he loses the election to try to stay. I mean, I partly in part as an answer to your question, I really don't think the Turkish army is going to go out on the streets and shoot at protesters, at, at civilians. That's like the interior ministry. Oh yes, so that 
the bigger problem is the police. I'm, I'm much, much more worried about the police than that of the um, uh, interior, the interior minister who is, yeah. Yeah, I think the police is uh, much more likely to intervene uh, on Erdogan's behalf at that point and disperse people. Um, but I think, yeah, I, th I think there's gonna be violence, but I think the opposition is gonna win. <laughs> Yes. I think they will win. I think they could. I think that's more likely than the army actually stepping in. I, I just can't see it. I don't, I don't think Hulistiak, I don't think people, the soldiers would do it. Like officers would do it. So, so I agree. I, I think at a very basic level, I would say the one thing I'm confident about is Erdogan does not feel confident in his trust at institutions backing him. In the event, there is a decisive electoral defeat. I think all better off at that point because here's something that's kind of like embedded and gets weedy in the Turkish state, right? And this is, I would say, I would argue this is true for the Erdogan state and pre-Erdogan state. Assuming, assuming Kılıçdaroğlu wins first round, let's say 58% of the popular vote. He's the president-elect. Three days later, we're hoping for a power transition. So Erdogan's scrambling, thinking, what do I do? What can I count on if, if he's interested in staying in power? The security forces. Well, think about this. If you, you know, if you are commander of the first army in Istanbul, or if you are the chief of police or the chief of the security forces, Emniyet Genel Müdür, okay. Then you have to be weighing your options. I'm just betting that some of these people get phone calls from the Kalisharol team saying, you, you know, you've got a historic decision to make, dude. Yeah. You can step aside or do the right thing. This is the president-elect. In which case, you can basically, you know, step down with dignity and you know, we'll possibly let bygones be bygones and we'll reinstitutionize a new sort of police you know, security force. Or if you resist, this guy's gonna become president anyway and then you might have to answer for things. This, you know, this, the state does have a way of holding people accountable. And this also applies, I would say, to the High Election Council. Those holdouts who might want to ban or refuse to issue the president-elect with their certificate of, of presidents, you know, the, the, yeah. the, the piece of paper that allows them to take office. You'd have to think seriously about who you're going to say no to, given the reality folding in front of you. Now, I'm not saying that's going to happen, but to your question in terms of, well, I don't think Turkey's Egypt, whereby you have Mubarak bearing down on security forces saying, fire on that crowd or do this, because even then they relented. And I would argue that Egypt's the most, in, you know, in the region, the most in, was the most institutionalized authoritarian and entrenched regime that I've seen in Malta. I don't think Turkey's there. I don't think Erdogan can count on the security forces being there um, and, and actually doing that. Um, yeah, they would maybe tear gas, but not. I, I can't see them shooting. Even the police, I can't see them shooting. And with the, even with the tear gas, if there are international observers there and officials from the United States, uh, embassies, consulates um, among the crowd or, or looking very closely, I think that will deter even the level of violence that the police would contemplate using. So I think with that, I think we're going to try to leave it on a relatively optimistic note. Um, I think that counts as optimistic yes. amongst this group. We even brought Sinan around <laughs> a little bit. Um, I want to thank all the guests, Merve Tahir Olu, Henri Barki, Sinan Jidi. Um, very interesting discussion. I think very informative. I enjoyed it immensely. Um, thank you, Nate, and for coming down. Thank you, thank you uh, all for attending.